The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with hosts Victoria and Adair Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here with her daughter Adair, a lifelong vegan and an actress, a playwright, and a stunt performer to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now let's get this party started. Here are your hosts, Victoria and Adair. everybody. This is Victoria Moran. Without a dare, unfortunately, I'm going to be your host, it seems, all by my lonesome. Adair has gotten all involved in lots of other things. In addition to being an actor and a stunt performer, she's got her regular day jobs, which all the creative New York City people do. And she's also volunteering a lot with the Wild Bird Fund and rehabbing Injured animals. I was over there today. She has a pigeon named Sebastian because he blew in from the storm like someone in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, thus the name. They're not sure just what the problem is. They're thinking that it's pigeon chlamydia. Who knew? You know, it is interesting when you think about the anatomy of various species, if you go to a science museum and you see the bones of different little and large beings, how much we're all alike. And as I listen to Adair and her work with these wild birds and other creatures, even a lot of the diseases are the same kinds of things that we can get. There's a whole lot of connection here on God's wonderful earth. Now, those of you who are listening live today, October 31st, 2012, know that here in the northeastern part of the country, at least, we have just been through what they used to call the storm of the century, except we're getting them a lot more often than once a century. I am grateful to be able to tell you that where my husband William and I live, and where Adair and her husband Nick lives up here in, in Harlem, we've really seen no damage at all. We had a very, very windy Monday, but no flooding, minimal damage. We've kept power. But as the media is calling the situation a tale of two cities in other parts of Manhattan, which is really a very small island. We're, we're two miles across and 18 miles up and down. And in some of the parts of the city where I would just go on a 15-minute express subway ride on an ordinary day, it's a disaster area. So as I watched those, those images on television, it was like when I watched Katrina in, in New Orleans. It was, it was horrible, and yet it was far away. And that's kind of how this seems, and yet it's not far away at all. It's just a 
very, very close distance. And my heart and my prayers are certainly going out to everybody who's been affected, whether it's just an inconvenience or a, or a serious loss. We know that in the end, we can get through all this stuff, and there really is light at the end of every tunnel. Thank goodness that we can hold people in the light, knowing the truth for them, and that we are going to get through this. This is one of the great things about New York City. Oh, my gosh, one of many great things about New York City. I love the spunk. Having been here through 9-11, Hi, we seem to have lost our Skype there for a moment. But anyway, I was just talking about spunk. Oh, my gosh, pluck and valor. This morning I noticed on Twitter my my son-in-law, Dare's husband, Nick, tweeted, I am one of the lucky ones who actually gets to go to work, even if it is a four-and-a-half-mile walk. And I presume, even though there are some very crowded buses on some very crowded streets, because New Yorkers are all above ground, which is unusual for us, um, he'll be walking back four and a half miles. And these are just the things that people do, and it makes me admire Nick and admire so many people that are showing up today for what needs to be done. So I'm going to give you a, a brief intro to our guest, and if I've introed before he calls in, uh, then we'll just have a little break there. But oh my gosh, I am so excited to have Dr. Jonathan Balcom as our guest on the show today. I have waited for this Halloween day for weeks and weeks and weeks because I've been so excited that he said yes. Jonathan Balcom has a PhD in ethology, which means animal behavior. He's the author of three popular books and beautiful books, Pleasurable Kingdom, Second Nature, and The Exultant Ark, which is a beautiful pictorial coffee table kind of book about animal pleasure. It had a glorious review in the New York Times, and it's such a great book that I'm not even jealous. Jonathan is currently Department Chair for Animal Studies with Humane Society University, where he teaches courses in animal behavior and animal sentience. You know, that's something we vegans and vegetarians think about quite a bit. There's a wonderful quotation from Jeremy Bentham, and and it's quoted a lot by animal people, where he said, the question is not, can they think, nor can they reason, but can they suffer? And that's sentience. We know that other beings feel, and many of us are involved in helping them feel less pain. And Jonathan Balcom is there to help us understand that they also feel lots of pleasure. And we're going to talk about that today when Dr. Balcom calls in. And I see the note says, got him. That means he's called in already. Jonathan, are you there? Hi, Victoria. Hey, it's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I've already talked you up. Now, did the storm affect your area at all? It affected our area, but fortunately not my home. Uh, We didn't lose power, which we used to lose just when you said the word storm was enough to make the power go out, but we kept it this time. So things Ah, are looking up in my neighborhood. Oh, that's good. That makes such a difference when you're not having to. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, your your area got struck worse, and we we just had some winds and uh, a lot of rain, but uh, yeah, where I live is high enough not to be flooded. So yes, lucky. yes, 
Well, that's how it is. I was telling people in our neighborhood too, but I know that people so close by are are experiencing so much destruction and loss. It's just such a, a strange sense. You're used to seeing something far, far away that's awful, but seeing something and knowing how close it is, but looking out the window and having everything look normal, it, it, it's it's bizarre. So um, I'm glad to be here talking with you. It's just so exciting to me. First, let's just get into this thing. You are a scientist, and you are an ethical vegan. How do you get along with your colleagues? Well, I have to say most of my colleagues now and through most of my professional career have been of a similar way of thinking. Uh, Not all vegans, but certainly people who are um, ethically tuned in, and especially when it comes to animals, because I've chosen a career in animal protection. So I do rub shoulders with scholars uh, quite a bit now that I work for a university, Humane Society University. Um, But even then, most of those scholars are also um, of a similar way of seeing the world, uh, a world which... um, needs a lot of repairing in terms of our relationship to animals. So uh, I think maybe if I if I go and work at a conventional university, I'll, of course, encounter um, more resistance to my way of thinking. Uh, but uh, in the milieu that I'm in, most of the people I see are, are a similar way. And in fact, that's that's one of the challenges of the work I do is is not preaching to the converted, is reaching out to those who may be uninitiated in terms of the kinds of concerns we we need to have about uh, other animals. So was this something that was an interest for you as a child? How did you become an ethologist? My parents, of course, one's parents tend to be very influential in one's life. And I think I'm really a case of nature nurture. Um, In terms of nurture, my parents inculcated me with the an attitude of respect and concern for all animals from right from the beginning because they they share that that interest uh, that ethical concern for animals but i think i was also born with it to some degree because i don't remember really learning any particular lessons i i was just uh, intrinsically very uh, empathic towards animals i didn't like it when anyone stepped on a on an insect or 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 what have you uh, but of course i had my my periods of of, of blindness or not being aware I remember being taken out fishing uh, at the age of eight and uh, not liking what, a lot of what I saw. But then again, I didn't have to do the dirty work. I didn't have to bait the hooks with squirming earthworms or um, remove the wire from the mouths of these fishes or plunge the knife into their heads to kill them, which is what the the other guy in the boat was doing, the, the grown-up, the adult. But I remember being very disturbed by that. So I think I've always had this sensitivity right from the beginning. And uh, I, as I've learned more about animals, it's only served to really reinforce that uh, that sort of instinctive concern I had from the beginning. Well, I know your expertise is animals and not humans, but we're animals too. So why do you think it is that some people have this sense that other creatures matter and others can just ignore that so thoroughly? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm I'm not uh, really a psychologist. I don't probably have the kind of expertise that could answer that in a scholarly way. But it, it does seem that we humans have some cognitive skills that maybe don't serve us well in terms of that relationship and with others. We're capable of great reaches of empathy, and yet we're also very, very skilled at categorizing and parsing and dividing into different categories. And I think if we are taught, and I think the lessons are continually thrust upon us from an early age, that animals, meaning, of course, non-human animals, we being animals as well, that the other animals are in a separate category, that they are somehow this this wall or line that divides us from all the others and this is so deeply entrenched in so much of our culture what we eat what we read religious teachings it's just really explicitly or implicitly driven in driven home into our brains from an early age and so i think that's that's the root that's the root of where we are now with our relationship with animals which is that we we care about them. I think humans don't like animals to suffer. We don't like cruelty. We, most people abhor animal cruelty and suffering, and yet uh, most of us are funding 
some of the most horrible abuses of animals every day when we go to the supermarket or the drugstore. And um, that's the disconnect that we have because we are able to categorize and perhaps also turn a blind eye because we don't have to get our hands dirty with the what's going on behind the scenes. Most of us are neatly removed from the realities behind the scene. This is so true. If you'd like to join the conversation with Dr. Jonathan then Balcom and me, you can call us at 888-558-6489. Again, our toll-free number, 888-558-6489. And if you do, you, if you're the first caller, uh, will get a signed copy of Jonathan's book, Pleasurable Kingdom which is a real treat. So uh, give a call and join our conversation. So, uh, Jonathan, as an ethologist, your area of expertise is animal pleasure. Why did you find that, and what's important about it? Yeah, um, I discovered the idea for animal pleasure while I was birdwatching in Virginia about 12 years ago, and it really it was like getting hit over the head with a hammer. Uh, because it was um, just something that I hadn't thought about before in terms of how we view and study animals. And I watched an interaction between two crows that was very clearly uh, motivated by a desire for pleasure. It was what we would academically call allopreening, that is, preening another. And this one crow requested the, the, the neck rub from the other crow. And uh, I stood back from my my spotting scope and thought, you know, if I if I had to pick a word to describe this interaction, it would it would be the word pleasure. And I realized I'd studied biology for ten years at three different universities, and I don't didn't recall a single occasion when animals' behavior was placed in the context of pleasure, in the context of um, a positive affect, a positive experience. Scientists do talk about rewards and reward systems in the brain and that sort of thing, um, but it's if it's mentioned at all, it's almost invariably in an evolutionary context. It's not talked about as sort of a the individual's feelings and how the individual's experiencing their world. So that really was a, an epiphany moment for me, and it set me on a path to write a book about about this subject, and it was a joy to research and to dig out what was out there that may not have been presented scientifically in the context of animals experiencing pleasure, but was clearly consistent with that ability. So to formulate the arguments and then to marshal the evidence and then to discuss the implications, uh, that's really been a very major part of my professional mission in the last, in the decade since. It's interesting that nobody would deny that a pet experiences pleasure. You know, my dog likes a belly rub. My cat likes to have his cheeks rubbed. But when we think about the whole animal kingdom, it just seems different. That comes back to our ability to categorize, doesn't it? I mean, we, we have pets and we have pests and we have lab animals and farm animals and wild animals. And we, we sort of have this sort of cultural niche that we place them, place them in when, of course, back to what you said earlier about Jeremy Bentham's comment about uh, can they suffer, they're all equals. They all have the same, essentially, the same sensory equipment, and um, there's no difference between the capacity for pain or pleasure in a rat who happens to be uh, somebody's pet or being used in a research lab or regarded as a pest because it's invaded someone's home. Uh, we categorize them differently and we treat them vastly differently, and yet the animal is the same. The animal, in terms of that core, those core capacities to think and feel and react and respond and move and do all the things that a rat does, and that's 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 our that's sort of this cultural thing that we have, this um, troubled gift. <laughs> I, I think it's. It's useful, but it's also really problematic when it comes to how we decide to, to interact with other beings who can feel. Mm, troubled gift. <laughs> what a great phrase. Oh, my goodness. We are just coming up to our break time here in about a minute. If you want to call in and join this conversation and receive a signed copy of Pleasurable Kingdom, give us a call, 888 558 
You can also find out more about Dr. Balcom's work at www.jonathanbalcombe.com. And you can learn more about Humane Society University at humanesocietyuniversity.org. And we'll be back right after these messages with more of Main Street Vegan on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. If Unity Online Radio has helped you grow spiritually through programs like this one, please consider supporting this online radio programming. Visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for helping us continue to serve as the voice of an awakening world. listeners did you know we've gone mobile that's right your favorite unity online radio programs are available on your mobile device now you can take us with you wherever you go using apps from live 365 or stitcher you can listen to unity online radio live or on demand to learn more visit www.unity.fm and click on mobile listening Unity Online Radio is turning five this year, and we're throwing the biggest bash of all. A cruise to the Caribbean, November 10th through 17th, 2012. We'll celebrate in style aboard Holland America Line's Eurodam, with sunshine, fine dining, and a selection of island excursions at beautiful ports of call in the Eastern Caribbean. Plus, feed your spirit with music, message, and meditation. Your favorite host will be there, and we hope you join us too as we celebrate five years of spiritual programming at Unity Online Radio. For more information, go to www.unity.fm slash cruise. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria and Adair Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan. I am Victoria Moran, and Main Street Vegan is a book that I wrote with the capable help of my lovely daughter, Adair, and you can find that at barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and wherever books are sold. You can also find more about us at mainstreetvegan.net. Or follow me on Twitter, as the gentleman said, at Victoria underscore Moran. I just love tweeting. It seems like it's the only thing online that doesn't take all day. I'm talking this hour with Dr. Jonathan Balcom, animal behaviorist and one of my favorite people on earth. If you get a chance to hear Dr. Balcom speak, run, do not walk to his presentations. Not only are they fascinating and fabulous, but he has the most exquisite photographs of every kind of animal you can imagine. It's really, really wonderful to be in in one of his talks. So, Jonathan, we were talking about animal pleasure, and, and you touched on that word sentience. What does it mean, and why is it so important? Sentience is the capacity to feel and most relevantly, the capacity to feel pain, uh, but as we've been talking about also the capacity for pleasure, which I, I would say is almost as important, and uh, really the, that's the, the basic meaning of sentience, being able to feel. Uh, it, it, in most people's minds, it requires some level of conscious awareness uh, because pain is not merely something that the body registers. It needs to be experienced. It needs to be felt. So there are certain criteria that an animal needs to meet to be sentient 
and it's always an ongoing discussion. It'll probably always be a discussion where to draw the line on sentience. You know, are, are amoebas sentient? Are cockroaches? Uh, um, there's not really much doubt that all vertebrate animals, that is, animals with backbones, are sentient. But anyway, so sentience is the is the ability to feel. And why is it important? Uh, I regard sentience as the bedrock of ethics. The the reason that we have moral systems, the, we, the reason that we have developed laws and rules, it all really boils down to the fact that other individuals have have lives that matter. They have a welfare, if you like. They have things that can go well for them and things that can go not well. And because of that, we have duties and responsibilities to those other individuals. And generally, when we're talking about other individuals, I think most people are thinking of other people. But the issue with animals, of course, is that they, being sentient themselves, um, they also have moral weight. And so we need to consider how, how we interact with them because their lives matter. They may not matter to us, but they matter to themselves. Uh, just to flip the coin, we may not matter to them. Uh, but we matter to ourselves. So th- a lot of the uh, the moral progress that humans have been trying to make in the last few decades about with respect to animals is simply to acknowledge this fact that they are sentient and therefore they are of moral import, and we need to consider that in our be- in our own behavior. I'm hearing you describe in a scientific way something that was stated in a religious way by Mahavira, uh, the Jain saint in India thousands of years ago. He said to every creature, his own life is very dear. And I remember the first time I read that, it just changed everything. It was one of those, of course, aha. Now, you talked about humans' moral compass, but we've had discussions when you've talked with me about the the ethical actions or what we would describe as ethical actions of other animals, including and particularly because I'm fascinated by the misunderstood animals. You once told me that rats are ethical. Yeah, no question. I mean, okay, people might quibble with the word ethical. Um, I like the word that I think Mark Beckhoff has probably done more than anyone else to draw attention to, and that is virtuous. Uh, virtues, and there's no question that uh, that rats and many many animals show virtuous behavior, and this is completely consistent with evolutionary theory. So even if one just wants to stay in the sphere of evolution um, and not venture into the more the the spiritual realm, there's a very robust case can be made for why we should expect that that humans are not the only ones who can be good to others. Because um, being good to others is adaptive and beneficial to the individual. And I I do want to hasten to add that that's not the only circumstance in which one animal does a good deed to another. Uh, Animals uh, show a lot of um, what's called altruism, you know, essentially self-sacrificial behavior that benefits another, which is really the the pinnacle of virtue, I would say, when you you suffer a cost to yourself. Uh, And we do that loosely when we donate to a cause uh, or or help somebody who's in trouble that may put us uh, expose us to a bit of danger ourselves i mean humans are, are very much capable of virtuous behavior but other animals too so so the rats you mentioned uh, for instance a study was was got a lot of attention i think sometime last year in which um one rat was placed inside a glass jar essentially i mean i think it had breathing holes but it it had a lock on it and um that rat was essentially trapped in there and then another rat was placed into the enclosure where this rat was trapped and only the rat on the outside could unlock the door and the rat who was introduced had the opportunity to go and eat some chocolate and other treats that were made available but rather than just go for the food the rat was more compelled to rescue uh, the fellow rat from the uh, glass container uh, from the little prison cell first. And you can watch the video of this rat. And, of course, this is a scientific study. It wasn't just done once. It was repeated with many different rats. And rats are inclined, strongly inclined, to rescue a conspecific, another rat, first before they go and uh, eat chocolate. So both rats got to eat the chocolate. So that's just one example, a fairly recent example of of so-called virtuous behavior. Uh, Because rats have been so popular as research subjects by 
scientists for so long, there are numerous studies out there that demonstrate other other sort of manifestations of, of this kind of ethical or virtuous behavior. And it's really a product of rats being a highly social species. I think where you're going to find the most virtue is in, is where you is where animals are particularly social. Um, you know, cats are lovely, and they they can be probably a little bit virtuous at times. But I mean, I think there's a lot to be there's a lot to be said for their relatively solitary origins. That they tend to be very self-sufficient and self-serving, and less um, responsive. Now, some people who are cat people, and by the way, I live with cats who are listening to this, maybe bristling. But um, if you've seen cats and dogs, you'll see that dogs generally are more attuned and attentive to the human, and that's really due to the fact that dogs have a much more social history than cats do. Now, you've worked, I believe, with bats. You've done some study with bats. Is that right? Speaking of Halloween, yes. I I was going to say. Better part of 10 years. Well, bats absolutely fascinate me. I was at a little museum in Central Park, and they had hanging on the wall the skeleton of this little bat. And I was blown away by the fact that with the exception of the lovely little wing bones, this bat had the same sort of, of skeletal structure, the, the ribs and the femur and, and the pelvis and all that, as a human. <laughs> and I understand they're mammals, but I don't understand that they're mammals. They seem so different. So tell us about bats. Yeah, bats are just so awesome. They're just uh, endlessly fascinating. Uh, a photo I saw recently, uh, which your description uh, reminded me of, that was uh, one of the finalists, I think, in an international mi- macro microphotography competition. It's of three black mastiff bats. Unfortunately, they were embryos. I don't know how they were begat for that photograph, uh, but it's circulated on um, Facebook is where I saw it. And then I saw it again in the uh, Washington Post yesterday. Um, I think it was the Washington Post. Maybe it was actually uh, National Geographic magazine. I can't remember. But anyway, these three little, uh, they're still pale white. They'll be black as adults, but they're white, ghostly white in this photograph, these tiny babies, and they're just so gothically beautiful. Um, but but just bats in general are, are absolutely fascinating. They're hugely diverse, even though we most people could probably only name one or two bats: the vampire bat and maybe one or two others if they're if they're well informed. And yet there are about a thousand species of bats that scientists have discovered, which means that if you lined up every species of mammal in a row, a representative from each species every on Earth, every fourth mammal would be a bat. So they're remarkably diverse, and as you might expect from that, combined with the fact that they live in this relatively alien milieu where they're foraging and orienting in the dark using this fascinating echolocation system, they have some. Some of them have some pretty bizarre faces: big ears, um, sometimes what's called a nose leaf, this sort of flowery structure on the nose, which is thought to help to beam their echolocation calls more accurately, and. And then uh, some of them have very, very small eyes. They're, they're, none of them are blind, but, but vision isn't, isn't important to all of them. And then you, do, you also have about 300 species of fruit bats that can that use their eyes and, and nose to find their food. And so they've got very good night vision and just amazing creatures. And you're right. You see the skeleton, and you're essentially seeing another mammal. It's, it's very similar. It looks like a mouse superficially, only with... Um, with these uh, elongated fingers, and it's the same bones. They've even got the same names. The bones of the wing in a bat are the same bones of the arm of a human or the front fin of a whale. It's all homologous structures, common evolutionary origins. And yet, because of millennia, well, really millions of years, of different evolutionary pressures, they've become very different creatures uh, but once again, coming back to something we share with them is, is they are to also sentient. Uh, sentience has been around for a long time, and it's very important to survival and coping in the world. And bats are certainly sentient. And I'll say one more thing, and that is they've also been shown to show virtue. Um, in fact, it was the common vampire bat that was the first example to fit a theory called the reciprocal altruism, that is the a theory to help explain why one animal will make a personal sacrifice to help another. 
that was actually first published um, in the late 1980s, I think it was, or early 80s, in the uh, common vampire bat where they share blood with each other when another female is unable to forage that night because she's ill or giving birth. Another one will share blood even though they're not related to each other. Wow. I love your stories. I would like to go camping with you. I'm talking with Dr. Jonathan <laughs> Balcom. <laughs> you can find him at jonathanbalcom.com. His wonderful, wonderful books are Pleasurable Kingdom, Second Nature, and The Exultant Ark. Now, you're working on another book, and I know you don't want to give away any secrets from that, but can you tell us the subject? Yeah, it's uh, the working title is The Inner Lives of Fishes, and... I don't know if that will remain the title, but the focus will definitely be on fishes. And the reason I want to write that book is because collectively fishes are far and away the most exploited group of vertebrates on this planet. And secondly, they're overlooked. And one manifestation of how they're overlooked is that there's to this day not a single true advocacy book for fishes and the third reason I want to write this book is that the science of fish sentience, fish cognition, the complex behaviors that fishes are capable of has advanced to a, a point that a very, very clear and robust argument can be made that we need to overhaul our relationship to them as well. And so that's really the basis for this book. It's it's challenging because not because there's not great information, but because people don't look at fish as huggable and lovable in the way that we look at cats and dogs. Of course, they don't look at bats that way either. Uh, but um, that's not enough reason to not do a book. So I feel privileged to be swimming down this road <laughs> or this channel to uh, to write a book on fishes. Well, I'm very excited about this book. I, I quoted you a few times in Main Street Vegan. Thank you so much for that. I even quoted you in the chapter, What Do Vegans Eat? Uh, and told your, your lovely menu for a day when you were visiting relatives in England. But, but the quotes that I, I really, really love from you are, are these about Fishes, and I love how you say fish as, because when we think fish, you know, you hear lots of times, well, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat some fish. And I don't think it would be possible to say, well, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat some fishes, because then it would be very obvious that they're not in this kind of no man's land between the plant and the animal. You know, what people choose to eat is their business, but a fish is not a vegetable. So tell us a fish story. Tell us some of these interesting things that we're finding out about fish cognition. No way. It's all secret. No, I'm just (laughs) kidding. I'm just kidding. I'll be happy to to share that. But just to back up on your language there, it it is intriguing how we de-individualize animals if we're talking about them as something to eat. We don't say, I eat chickens. People say, I eat chicken. And, uh, you know, I I don't eat chicken because I like chickens. And and it's just a one-letter addition kind of makes all the difference in the world. So about fishes, well, yeah, it's important to call them fishes, I think, for that reason, at least in the context of what I'm doing, which is writing about them as individuals, even though we may be killing possibly, according to one estimate, uh, the staggering number of over a trillion fishes a year in our rapacious uh, relationship with the, particularly the oceans. It's easy to forget with numbers like that that every single one is, is as unique as the proverbial grain of sand on a beach. They are individuals with feelings and experiences. Uh, everyone is different. So um, what can they do? Well, they're their lives are so much more complex than we think. And and really part of this is just, it's like with bats. They're mysterious. We're not tuned into them well. Why? Because in the case of bats, they're nocturnal. They're active at night. We're diurnal. We're active at day. In the case of fish, we're air breathers. We live out of the water. They're, they're, they breathe in the water and they live in the water and it's a different milieu. So for that reason, we've really kind of, pardon the pun, but missed the boat on, on fishes. And But scientists are an ingenious lot, and technological advances are allowing scientists to observe fishes in ways that they couldn't before. And they're revealing aspects of their social lives and their cognitive abilities and their sentience that uh, some would have thought was just fantasy just a few a few years ago. So I'll give you an example of an interesting fish behavior, a predator inspection. It's, it's a behavior in which 
one, maybe two fish will, will team up to swim up to a large, dangerous, predatory fish to check them out. And it's, it's impressive in the sense that it probably requires a lot of courage, and observations of fishes who are engaging in this behavior show that they are very flighty, they're hesitant, they're ready to swim fast away at any moment. They, they show all the sort of fishy signs of being scared by what they're doing. Um, other fishes are watching these interactions, so it looks like it may be, it could even be showing off in some cases. It's certainly virtuous because everybody benefits by these inspections because what the inspections seem to be doing is to size up the predator, sniff them out in a literal sense because fishes do a lot of communication by chemicals and fishes um, can smell uh, possibly the motivational state of another fish by, by smelling them. Um, and then they, so they check them out and in a way that they're not likely to get eaten and then they return to the school that they're in and maybe share that information um, presumably everyone benefits but in any event they are sizing up the predator to make to see what kind of state they're in are they hungry are they going to try and eat us it's a little bit like you can see gazelles quite calmly just keeping an eye on cheetahs or lions out in the African grasslands, if they know they're full, they're not worried about them. They're not dangerous to them. They're not going to chase them. So fishes oh, do that. And it's I courageous and I would we say have, virtuous. You have to go to a break, but there's another fish story I want to ask you about when we come back. Stay with us for more of Main Street Vegan on Unity Online Radio. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com. Amazon.com or your favorite bookseller. God is formless, yet takes many forms. What goes around comes around. Chant the name of the Lord and be free. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ever been confused by the variety and apparent contradiction within world religions? Join Reverend Paul John Roach every Tuesday for insight into those principles held in common by all the great religious traditions in world spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions. Using discussions, interviews, humor, insight, and practice, Practical advice, we will clarify the confusion and reveal simple yet profound truths. Call in with your questions and ideas and help break down the barriers that separate us from one another. That's World Spirituality with Paul John Roach, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here are your hosts, Victoria and Adair. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan. I'm Victoria Moran. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Balcom. Our call-in number here in our very last few minutes is 888-558-6489. You can find out more about today's guest at jonathanbalcom.com or look up his Books, Pleasurable Kingdom, Second Nature, and The Exultant Ark. Okay, one more fish story, please. I like the one about the fish who have a business. Yeah, you're p- referring to the cleaning stations, I think, that uh, yes. one can see on uh, on coral reefs and some other habitats. Uh, 
fishes do a cleaning service, certain types of fishes, and they swim a certain way to advertise that they're open for business. And they uh, they may have blue stripes or other colors that sort of are clearly indicate that that's what they do. And other fishes uh, see when when they're open for business, and they'll swim up and stop and be serviced. One, these one or two cleaner fishes will pluck over the outer surface, um, swim inside the mouth, uh, remove bits of vegetation, sloughing skin, um, algae. Um, if there's a wound, they may help clean the wound. Um, parasites get removed, so it's a it's a sort of a spa service for their for the client fish, which is what their scientists refer to them client fish, and the cleaners get um, uh, some food. So it's a classic mutualism. It's a little bit like pollination of plants, uh, flowers by insects. The insect gets newt gets um, nectar, and the plant gets a pollen a pollen transport service. So um, it's uh, and the, and these these associations, these business partnerships, are not random or willy-nilly. They are often long-established relationships where a particular client returns to this particular nook on the reef every maybe couple of weeks or so for their service. <clears throat> and these cleaners will, will service hundreds, sometimes over a thousand uh, fishes a day. So it's a, it's a very um, brisk uh, business going on. And uh, it gets a bit complicated because some fishes imitate cleaners and they are actually have kind of slightly evil intent and uh, may deliberately bite off more than they can chew. They'll take a nip from a fin and then quickly swim away. And it's probably for this reason that clients or potential clients observe these interactions. They actually watch them and keep accounts. I'm not making this up. They, they form an image score of the cleaners and good cleaners get more clients and cheaters um, are not going to get as many clients. And um, so it's it's Machiavellian. It's uh, socially complex, and it involves virtue. It involves deception, and uh, it's it's just as rich and socially diverse a behavioral um, dynamic as you will find in mammals and other terrestrial animals. And yet we're talking about those lowly creatures we just casually disregard as being fish. Fascinating. I can hardly wait for your book. Write quickly now. You're going to be coming to New York City in December, and you're actually not going to be the speaker at this event. You're going to be the interviewer. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's a series of events called Thinking Animals, and uh, it's um, held at Hunter College, which is in, um, I don't have the address of me, I think it's like 68th and uh, Lexington, near 68th and Lexington. Yes. In any event, if you go to the Thinking Animals website, and my computer is not currently on for various reasons that I won't go into, but uh, if you go to Thinking Animals, if you Google it, you can probably find it, and if you Google, if you couldn't find it, if you Googled my name or Temple Grandin, you'd, you'd find it, and and I'm going to be interviewing Temple Grandin, um, a Ph.D. scientist, animal behavior expert, um, at the event on December 7th. I think it starts at 7, um, but the website will have that. And she's um, a very interesting person. She's quite well-known for a couple of reasons. One is her best-selling books, um, Animals in Translation, and um, Animals Make Us Human was I one of her more recent ones. I think there's also an autobiography that's out now, and then there was also a biopic that was done uh, about two or, two or three years ago, in which Claire Danes won an award for portraying Temple Grandin. Uh, so she's uh, she's quite beloved by a lot of the American public, but she's also um, controversial because she one of the main things that she's done with her expertise is to try to design slaughterhouses to cause less suffering to the animals in there. And um, so, you know, her positions on horse slaughter and animal slaughter are not those of, of people who work for, say, in animal rights or um, those many people who work in animal welfare with, uh, with concerns about animal protection. Um, but she's worked within the industry. So some people say that she's done more for animal welfare than anyone else, and the case can be made. Uh, but the milieu is in within that sort of realm of where we do exploit animals and we do use them to our own ends. So it'll be interesting to talk to her. She's also known for being autistic, and that means 
that really results in really a very, in a way, a very fine quality that she has without even intending to have it. She shoots directly from the hip. She talks, speaks exactly how she feels. She doesn't uh, try to couch it in a delicate way. She will just say it, what she thinks, and so that will also make for an interesting interview. Well, I already have my ticket. <laughs> I think it's going to be fascinating, and I uh, I wish you well. Now, you have a, another controversial thought. This whole perception that nature is red in tooth and claw, you say, mm, sort of, but that's not all of it. What about Yeah, that? I think that's that's a fair way of putting it. Uh, I I don't... I don't try to make the case that nature's all lovely and fun. Of course not. That would be absurd. I'd be a little bit like saying we are joyous and happy every day in our, of our lives. Part of being alive is the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs. That's just the way it is. No escaping that. And it's no different for animals in the wild. And yes, nature can be cruel, and there are harsh things that happen in nature. But I do object to the common popular portrayal of nature, while, and I'm speaking specifically of wild nature, as a constant struggle for survival, um, red in tooth and claw, which is a, a phrase from a, a 19th century poem. Um, competition. If you watch a nature documentary on TV, much of it is is tailored to um, a male audience in their 20s, and there's just uh, there's a real premium on the violent struggle aspect of nature. And if you go walking out in the woods, you're going to go walking long and hard and far before you see a violent struggle. Uh, now, mind you, some of the violent struggles may be happening on a very small micro scale that you just can't notice. I mean, parasitism um, is common in the insect world, for instance. But, but my point there, though, is that a lot of most of what's going on in nature is cooperative, not competitive. It's getting on with life. There's a lot of leisure for some animals. They're not constantly working as hard as they can, working their proverbial fingers and wings and fins to the bone. They have time to um, reflect and to enjoy life. Life has benefits. Life is worth living. And that's a really key point I try to make in my work is is that life is worth living. And it's worth living because it it has rewards. It has a lot of rewards. Eating, sex, play, uh, aesthetics, uh, socializing, um, so many so many of these things that take up a big part of an animal's life are worth doing and rewarding. Mm, that is so lovely. Jonathan, why are you vegan? I'm vegan because I don't want to support and more explicitly to fund industries that cause suffering to animals. I don't want animals to suffer for me. I hate it. I hate animal suffering. I don't want to I I I hate seeing it. Um it really saddens me and upsets me. And it's great to be an autonomous being that I can make choices in what I what I purchase, what I support and what I don't. And so it's very empowering, you know, when I go to the supermarket uh, to buy a product that gives a vote to a company that's doing a good thing, in my view, and to not give a vote for a company that's doing things that I don't support. And so veganism, I regard it as an, as an effort, and I say effort because we can't eliminate harming animals. Whenever we get in a car, we walk, tread the earth. I mean, it's not about perfection. It's about making a conscious effort to reduce and minimize one's negative impact on animals within reason. So um, that's that's what it's about for me, and it all comes back to that sentience, the fact that animals can feel and suffer like I can, and I know what it feels like to suffer. I know what pain, pain feels like. It's not fun, and I don't want others to have it. So that's really what it's about for me. Oh, that's cool. And it's also a pleasure. I think so many people say, oh, I could never do that. That seems so yes. hard. I find every so meal is a great delight, not to mention shoe shopping. <laughs> <laughs> Which I probably do a little less than you, but, but I probably eat twice as much as you. So, you know, we, we, uh, we have our own ways of getting our, our delights. You know, I bike to work today, so I burn a lot of calories. I need to eat lots of delicious vegan food. And it is. It's so true. And I love that's something I love about what you do is you really put a smile on the vegan face. Uh, you show that it is such, it's so great and rewarding. It's not a sacrifice. It's a joy. 
Well, I have to tell you, when I turned in the chapter that, that your one day's meal was in, my, my editor wrote back and said, these, these people, they just don't eat enough. They, they're all health nuts. They seem like anorexic. Well, well, except for this guy over here. Now his food looked good. I could eat that. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I was visiting my parents, but, uh, I, I eat a lot. I stay slim, which is pretty amazing. And, uh, and I love food like the next person. And there's a lot of good stuff out there. So yeah, I, I know there... I was, I was pretty impressed when I looked at what I'd eaten that day. <laughs> well, it was quite delicious. Plus you had oat cakes. I love oat cakes. You can get them at the supermarket. They're from Scotland. They look like a cookie, but they don't sugar. They're, they're just this lovely sort of cookie-like thing. You know, we said that a, a fish is not something between vegetable and, and animal. A fish is an animal. But an oat cake actually is between a cracker and a cookie, and that's a good thing to know about. Dr. Jonathan Balcom, thank you so much. Thank you for spending this time with us today. You can look up Jonathan, everybody, at jonathanbalcom.com, humanesocietyuniversity.org. Check out Thinking Animals if you're in New York City, and come and hear Jonathan and Dr. Temple Grandin. And check us out, MainStreetVegan.net, and we'll be back here next week with more Main Street Vegan on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria and Adair Moran entertain, educate, and inspire you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria and Adair or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. In a world that accepts mediocrity, conformity, and limitation, we are being called to shatter previously held beliefs about what is possible and live bigger, bolder, and more outrageously. As we explore cutting-edge ideas, people, teachings, and practices, we will settle for nothing less than a life lived with passion and purpose. Join Reverends Robin Ryder and Robin Ferguson live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Central Time and explore what it is like to live your life out loud. Rebels with a Cause, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Inspiration only takes a moment. Consider these inspirational thoughts from the quest for prayer from Unity House Books. Holding a special loving thought for other people benefits us as much as it benefits them. In fact, in some ways, even more so. Consider, for example, what happens when you wash your car with a hose. What gets clean first? The inside of the hose, of course because the water must rush through the hose before it can clean the car. So it is when we hold loving thoughts for someone. As those loving thoughts rush through us, they bless us first. It is a win-win situation. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. Does music open your heart and bring you peace and joy? Experience the sacredness of sound with Ramdesh Kaur as we travel the world of mantra, kundalini yoga, and devotional music. Join us for a journey into spirit, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Spirit Voyage Radio with Ramdesh. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
He's the most talked about figure in history. How do you see Jesus? As a savior, a way shower, a mythical hero. In his cutting-edge new book, Jesus 2.1, an upgrade for the 21st century, Reverend Dr. Thomas Shepard explores the many human concepts of Jesus. The man of Nazareth has been an imaginary spiritual playmate for millions. Best friend, confidant, silent lover, surrogate father, brother, husband, trusted king when earthly governments fail, all-purpose superhero who will save the day before the final credits roll. Jesus is like a program that has been adapted through the ages while the basic code remains undisturbed despite all subsequent modifications. Now it is our time to rewrite and reinstall the Jesus program with updates for today, just as every previous generation has done and every subsequent generation will do. The Romans killed Jesus for being a revolutionary. Every succeeding generation kills him anew by losing sight of the ongoing revolution in human consciousness that he represents. Explore the new book, Jesus 2.1, at www.shopunity.org. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.